0: any sense of what the business might be worth before you flew to new york
1: Mm, we only had a number that we as owners were interested in. I think Sue, we were talking, I think Sue had a post-it note for $10 million on her mirror at that point. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that
2: for, since 2000 and I think 14, it yeah. had a special note and I've mm-hmm. written that as my, like my goal in life. <laughs> yeah.
0: What did 10 million mean to you, Sue? Like what, what was it about that number that was important enough to have mm-hmm. a sticky note on your mirror? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I've created that amount of content for someone else and I Mm. wanted to do the same for myself. Um, I wanted to, uh, I think the post-it note was a rejection response when I offered that content to, um, to sell before I built my own platform. I considered that I was smart enough to curate my own content and perhaps leverage that or license it. Um, on somebody else's platform. I approached a few people, I presented it to them and this one guy laughed at me. And I, I was a little humiliated, but I had a post-it, um, a little thing of bright pink post-its on top of my laptop. And when he like, said this, this thing to me, I wrote it onto this post-it and he said to me that um, anybody, Sue Bryce, can build a $2 million brand. But there are not many people that can build a $10 million brand. And to think you could do so with your name is, yeah, no, is, what, arrogant to assume. And I... You used the word arrogant? Yeah. And I wrote that. I actually wrote that whole quote and then I wrote $10 million and I cried. (laughs) I walked out of there and I cried. And um, I just had a good hard talk to myself. And I was like, you know, I was walking through this park and there was, I just thought to myself, I'm gonna do this on my own. I did the first business on my own. This is where I'm the best on my own. I'm not supported. And I just went, here I am again on my own. (laughs) I was standing there and this homeless guy on the park bench there went, like a drifter I was born. And I was like, thank you very much. I didn't know the next line. And I walked away and I just was like, I'm gonna do this, watch me. So to me that note was a challenge. It was, you can't do this. It was, you're arrogant to think you even can. And I remember thinking, well, that is all I've ever needed to achieve anything is people to tell me I can't because I'm sorry people told me that my whole life. And I think that might just be where my rocket fuel comes from.
0: Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John orlo and this is the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your business. And on that measure, I think we will deliver today because we have Sue Bryce and Craig Swanson, who built a membership website for photographers and ultimately had an eight-figure exit. Lots to unpack in today's episode, but before we go there, let me just say two quick things if you like this episode with sue and craig know that it was a nomination most of our best episodes come from you our listeners who have suggestions for people to interview if you've got someone who you think would make a great built to sell radio guest please visit built slash nominate the other way you can support the show if you're inclined is to give us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's super helpful for us spreading the word. While you're there, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All right, back to Sue and Craig. This episode is going to really unpack how to sell and monetize an expertise-driven company. And so you're gonna learn, first of all, how to name your company to maximize your chances of selling it, transform a creative business into a sellable asset, systematize your business to accelerate new employee onboarding, Convert your expertise into a paid membership online community. Pinpoint the best time to sell. Avoid getting ground down on price after signing an LOI, letter of intent. Protect your private information in the earliest stages of negotiating with an acquirer help you prepare to ace due diligence, decouple your name from your brand, even if it's part of your company name, and distinguish between a serious letter of intent and one that is likely going to be retraded on. Here to tell you the entire story of their exit is Sue Bryce and Craig Swanson. (music) Sue Bryce. Craig Swanson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio.
2: Hi, good to be here.
0: Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, so let's get into the business. Sue, tell me how you got into the photography business.
2: I've been a portrait photographer for 33 years. First 12 years I was employed, turned 30, wasn't making any money, knew I had to go into business, had zero business education, bootstrapped a studio in New Zealand, And I managed to make it profitable. I took my little studio to a million in in growth income in the the year and my revenue was really low because I was paying a lot of staff and I just wanted to work it and I did really well. And then I started to grow and then I knew I couldn't really scale it. So I looked, it was a great business and I looked at sort of international franchise around 2009. um, And, you know, it was a whole new market then especially online, and I actually thought that I was going to create a franchise model around the world. I went to Australia to sort of get some more intel, and I found Creative Life, which Craig had built and was sort of really coming up in 2010 in Seattle, and that was an online education platform. And I was like, well, maybe this franchise model that I've written is really online education. Um, <laughs>
0: So, so no. let me just jump in. So, so it was a, a million dollar portrait photography business, meaning you, your gross sales were a million dollars
2: yes. of taking
0: pictures of weddings and
2: no, not weddings portrait. No.
0: Portrait. Okay, so okay, got it. So first of all, that's a a, a huge achievement of in and of itself. I'm, I'm guessing most portrait photographers never get near a million dollars in revenue.
2: No, most of them don't get near a hundred thousand dollars income. So it was, and I'm uneducated. I left high school when I was fifteen years old. I didn't get a high school or tertiary education, and and I had a lot of things stacked against me in terms of being in business. But I also learned that I mastered my craft so you can't take mastery away no matter whether you're educated or not mastery comes afterwards so i mastered my craft and i really learned service and then i had to learn really everything about the basic law of commerce which is just how to be sustainable and profitable and i really built this amazing little business and and i also have a very unique niche in the actual craft department my brand was unique So that's why I knew I could franchise it. And yes, it wasn't until I started sharing that story that I realized my story was significant. And so that's what made the education even more connected. I could teach people how to make money.
0: You and I were talking about the name of that company. And and I assumed it was something like Sue Bryce photography, because it seems like every portrait photography is like their first name, last name, and then like, you know, whatever, but you named it something different. Describe why.
2: Well, Everybody kept asking me why did you call it you? And it was Y O U, but my tagline was it's all about you. It's a very feminine brand and it truly is about my clients. So um people So it was called you
0: photography. Yes, that, that was. was the name of the yeah, yeah. Okay.
2: And everyone said, Why didn't you call it Super Ice? And I said, Because I want to sell it. And I just knew that one day I would sell this studio. It never really felt like mine. I felt like I had built a business model. And also right from the beginning, small businesses inherently take a lot of cash. I refuse to take cash into this business. And because I said, I want every dollar recorded so I can sell it. Like that was always my, in the back of my head. But to be honest with you, I did not know why, or if I was ever going to do that. I just, That's a, yeah. you
0: know, Sue, that I got to tell you, that is really unique among Creative businesses, you know, when I talk to creative business owners, uh, so graphic design studio owners, uh, you you know, uh, anything in the creative space, it's almost dirty to talk about wanting to sell a company like that. Like, don't you know we're artists, John? Like, we would never sell, or we certainly wouldn't build to sell, and. And so I find it unique that here you are in a creative business, which is naturally an expression of you. It's creative in every way. You had this vision to sell it. I'm curious to know where that comes from because it's, it is is very unique among creative people.
2: It's, co- it's called um, working class hustle. That's what it's called. I knew – very, very quickly. I was 12 years a photographer before I started my business. I had mastered my craft, but I did not know how to price it, sell it, make a product, make it sustainable, actually run a business, employ people. It just came down to money. I knew I couldn't charge what I felt like. I couldn't charge the industry standard because I felt so guilty. It would cause me like horrific pain to say my prices. I realized I had all the shame around money I didn't know how to value that and, ma- and manage that. Um, that's what it came down to. If I did not learn this skill, I could not have this business. And um, so it was clear to me that my craft was already mastered, but nobody would buy it. And I was like, but I mastered it. But I like, yeah, but you've got to package it. You've got to sell it. You've got to run a system around this. You've got to market it. And, and so that's what I had to learn. I actually learned that over a three-year period with just intense learning Because here's the thing, I wasn't going to pay my rent. I wasn't a rich wife. I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have anybody to support me financially. I had to do it and make my rent. So to me, it was like, if you don't learn this, you're never going to get here. So for me, it was just always there. Also, I am an artist, but the business I created is not my art form. It is something I have loved and I created it with great love. It's not my identity and it can go out into the world. But again, I say that when I met Craig, we had the conversation that when you do sell a business, it's like your teenager is going to college. They're still yours, but you have no control over them anymore. And
0: uh, (laughs) and that takes
2: that. I I would love to say that was easy for me, but from the moment I left that studio in New Zealand and went to Australia, I had probably a rock bottom year where I just, couldn't find my feet. And I knew what I had to do. I was just a a little scared to take those next big steps, but yeah, that was always going to be my goal was to survive and learn about money. Once I learned about money, I'm now unstoppable in business. Because now I know about money.
0: (laughs) What else did you do? And I want to invite Craig into the conversation in a moment before, though. I, I just want to kind of put a pin in this last section, which is for folks who are in a creative business and they're hearing you talk about working class huddle hustle. And they're saying, yeah, you know what? I'm sick of being underpaid for what I do or, you know, for my artwork to be bastardized or, or, you know, undermined or whatever. I want to create a business I can sell. And I want to create a service company that I can sell. I've heard one thing that you did, which was to not name it your personal name so to name it something different so that you could sell it what else is there one or two other things that you did very tactical actionable things that you did to make it a business you could sell
2: yes this one was um this step really was just training three photographers that were as equal to me so that i was not the only one because obviously if i was not working we're not making money. So I had to make money when I wasn't there. That was obviously the, the first big step I did. And then the second one was really just understanding that this can be run by anybody, like not owning it or being golem over it. But, you know, I sold to my business partner. So I didn't go through a sale with this company. I didn't get to experience what that was like, I got to experience what it was like leaving it. <laughs> but I didn't here's, get to go through the sale of it, right?
0: Here's the thing, people are listening to that saying, yeah, but Sue, you don't understand, nobody does it as well as I do. Nobody takes a portrait photograph as well as I do. There's no way I could hire people and train them my art form. So I have to be the one taking the photographs. What was it that you did to get you out of taking the photographs?
2: I trained three photographers in one month and within the first month, all three of them had consistently over $1,800 average sales. So I knew with just those basic steps and the support that I'd created, I could take them to an instant income in my business. And as soon as I did that, I was no longer the photographer. I was the But
0: specifically, how did you train them? Again, because and Craig, you're you're raising your hand because you've got some (laughs) thoughts on this. Because again, you know what I'm asking you, right, Craig? Is 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 so many artists think that what they bring to the table is their art. And so the idea of building to sell, systematizing, somehow pulling themselves out of what they do is so foreign to them. Craig, what what would you add to this conversation?
1: So I would just say from, from the outside watching Sue, Sue is an extraordinary photographer and Sue does create art there. But I would say like Sue's even deeper calling is empowering other women and other people To live their life. And so Sue is constantly trying to raise up the people around her to take on the next step. So from my vantage point, I wasn't there for those first three women, but Sue probably took more joy out of seeing them step up to take photographs and be able to build something. than she took out of joy out of her own photography. Sure. She's a a, a natural trainer. She's a natural trainer. And so Mm. her art was as much the training as it was the photography. And so that's why she was able to let go of the training or the the photography.
0: That's super helpful. And what I want to get underneath is what your secret sauce is for training, Sue, because what I'm hearing is empowering. People can't do much with that. That's like, okay, great. So she empowered these three women. I get that. But I want to know tactically, like, did you give them a standard operating procedure? Did you did you uh, document your system? Like, what specifically did you do to empower those three women to build their business?
2: So I just have to tell myself, I'm not that important. I, I, even when I know I'm better at them, I've got to give them an opportunity to get better. I'm I'm just further along on the path than them. So, but, you know, I'm just not that important. I had to keep saying it to myself, like you're replaceable. If you weren't here tomorrow, other people can do this. And if they can't, then you don't actually have a business. And I would just keep saying it to myself. And and then I think I just had to let go. But like I said, that process took over a year. So it sounds good when you say it.
0: (laughs) One of the things I looked at before this interview was some of your uh, video training. And I noticed that pricing is a topic that seems to be very common. Was teaching these three photographers underneath you how to price their services part of the equation?
2: My studio was already priced. They were stepping into my price list. I was teaching them my craft and my system. They got the pricing instantly and because it was locked in and it's systemized, um, it sells because they were doing good work. It was What's really, the system? Um, the system was how we photograph and then how we basically create the packages that they're going to buy. And then we offer three packages. So it. it's such a basic sales system all the way through. I mean, it has multiple points of connection to your client and service right through to referral, but I see in systems and I, create businesses in systems. And because of that, I systemized how to train them. Then I realized that was my franchise model right there. Then I went, saw Craig, and then I realized, no, this is online education. So I just took what I did and I trained them. I said under a month, I actually trained them in 28 days. And so I took that training list. I presented it to Craig and I said, I want to teach how I did this in 28 days. And And let's,
0: and, and the rest is, is history as it were, but Craig, let's get into that because Mm -hmm. you met Sue and you guys started talking about a partnership and a, and a union of sorts that would enable her to take her content and train other photographers on her system. Effectively, pick it up from there.
1: All right. So in 2010, so there's there's this interim step. In 2010, I was the co-founder of a company called Creative Live that does online live education um, worldwide. People get to watch for free. So we have thousands, tens of thousands of people watching. Um, and we built up this entire system with a heavy emphasis on photography that replicated what used to be kind of the model in photography, which is three-day interactive classrooms that people would come in person. And so we were recruiting photography instructors to teach three-day classes in different subjects.
0: On how um, to become a photographer, professional photographer.
1: On how to do different areas of photography, whether it's lighting, posing, business models, different things like that. Got it. And Sue was probably the sixth or seventh instructor that we really like had, had locked into a position. Sue, um, at that time, didn't have much of a social following. Um,
2: no Facebook.
1: No Facebook, um, but was getting standing ovations when she was te- teaching in person, and was the person that other top photography instructors were basically pushing me to say, "This woman is extraordinary." And so Sue and I ended up talking, and we, we booked her for Creative Live, and she basically broke every record that Creative Live had had up to that point in terms of audience engagement, sales conversions, um, everything. Like she we, she was extraordinary.
0: Um and, and then you yeah. built a membership program that people mm-hmm. could join that would teach them how to run and build a photography business. Effectively, yeah. So she taught
1: on Creative Live for about five years, or about three, about four years, and then she consciously left Creative Live and started building her own online education platform. So she, in 2015, started basically said, "I need to own my own platform. I can't, I can't be on someone else's platform all the time." And so she started building that.
2: Craig said to me after my very first Creative Live, mm-hmm. I did three big workshops. My first year, I did three mm-hmm. of the the biggest workshops on Creative Live, and mm-hmm. after the first one, Craig said to me, "If I was not building Creative Live, I would build a company around you." And mm-hmm. um, because we instantly connected with this one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah, and you know, growth, people that can see growth in sales the way Craig does, they need a strong one, two, three. And people like me with a strong one, two, three need that four, five, six, because I could create anything, but I couldn't really grow it or sell it. I mean, you know, it's such a, and I, I did, I just, I wanted to build my own platform because I could not stop curating content for it. And even after putting out over 60 full filmed segments on Creative Live, I still needed to take people through it because when you watch online, it's just me doing it. Now you've got to go and do it. So they would pay to watch, but then they would go and try and then they go, I can't do that. So I would just create training systems online that walk them through each step-by-step action every day as challenges. And ultimately it just grew into a huge platform and yeah, I just had to keep creating it.
0: Craig, the, so creative live was your business, correct?
1: It was, it was a, it was a business that I started with a co-founder. We ended up taking investment and it, it ended up creating a, just a juggernaut. It it grew tremendously. It was started in 2010. I actually left creative live in 2015.
0: Got it. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? And it may sound like, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of odd, but I I think it's important to the story who owned Sue's content that she delivered at creative live. I'm wondering
2: copyright of all the content, but everything created on creative live is owned by them and they sell it. And I get the revenue percentage from that as an instructor.
0: I see. Excellent. And so when you decided to leave Creative Live and build this membership program Mm -hmm. with Sue. How did you think about that legacy archive of old content? Because in some ways, I'm assuming Mm -hmm. that that was a bit of a liability because it, you know, some of the IP that you were going to sell in the membership program Mm -hmm. existed in the public domain that people could buy a la carte. So how did you think about that?
1: Well, so one thing about spacing, just, just to be clear, I left creative live and it was about a year later that Sue and I came together to start building a membership site. She actually started building the membership site. Her first, she took the first step. And then okay. I came in about a year later after that. And I would say one of our biggest competitors in building Sue's membership site was creative live. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of how we viewed that it Sue is constantly creating. So the one thing is that Sue always maintained the right to all of her intellectual knowledge. What Creative Live owned was all the recordings of Sue's previous the final classics, recordings. The final yeah. recordings. And Sue effectively kept evolving in teaching and got better as a teacher. And so over time, everything on Sue Bryce's platform was newer, fresher, more relevant.
2: Well, when you teach the way I teach, you have to teach step-by-step and I teach step-by-step. And when you teach the way I teach in a private group, you're watching people mm-hmm. um, move. And when mm. you watch people and they lose momentum or don't gain momentum, or there are blocks on the path, or they don't understand a specific mm. level that they have to reach, or they constantly challenged Um, by their own money blocks, I see that so clearly. It was so easy for me to just keep curating the next step, the next step, the next step, because watching them take action was pretty much the metric for me as to what they needed next. And so when Craig says I evolved, I just keep evolving the education to the next level.
0: Great, great. So you built this business that was... Branded Sue Bryce Education, mm-hmm. which again, for folks listening, uh, you all know what a membership site is. You've all attended a live event. You've, yeah. you know, the, these are things that uh, everybody listening, whether they're in the photography business or not, mm-hmm. are familiar with. the, the yeah. membership website had content, how-to content that was behind a paywall. Effectively, you have yep. three different yep. levels that, that mm-hmm. folks could join, and then they also could participate in live events. Mm-hmm. Am I getting yeah. the business model kind of yeah, right th- loosely? Th-
1: th- yeah, that's really, that's, that is the effectiveness of it. And Sue got into a rhythm. The first thing we really built out was a live weekly broadcast from Sue. So every Tuesday at noon, um, California time, Sue was going live. And people got into this rhythm of... Every week, Sue was there helping them learn something new, and she was constantly creating new content, constantly teaching new things. And that was the heartbeat of this membership system. And then- this,
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, this becomes relevant as we get into- your acquisition story. Well, you know, I just uh,
2: got to say, when I started that LLC, it was the portrait system. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> I had every intention of building that platform and calling it the portrait system. And then when I ended up partnering with Craig, George and Aaron, they all sat me down and said, we're calling it Superice Education. So our LLC has always been the portrait system. But they, Craig was like, when I put your name on it, it sells more.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So we got to get into this. So, yeah. but just for folks to be clear, it's called the portrait system, which is a yep. membership program, three price points. You've seen, mm-hmm. you, I mean, everybody's seen, you know, a, a, a paid membership program before. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And Sue was adamant. I mean, she'd gone through this with her own portrait business. It mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, Sue Bryce portraits. Yep. It was you. And so she had this, this was a Obviously, an important piece for her. But from your perspective, Craig, you're like, I mean, the numbers don't lie. when it has Sue Bryce's name on it, it sells more
1: exactly. and and I, I was a strong advocate, and we did. So the corporation was the portrait system, LLC, and we had a complete design of the website that was branded the Portrait System. And before we launched, we we had it out. You know, team team arguments, team debates, and we ended up launching as Sue Bryce Education. Um, so, so what
0: happened, Sue? How'd you lose that battle?
2: <laughs> Look, I I understand what they were saying, <laughs> but you know, I gotta say, um, the, the weird thing is, is it's also a way to hide not putting your name on it. And when you build, when you help people build businesses, so often people, you know, will put like fluffybunny.com or whatever it is. And and you just think, well, you know, you can own who you are in this. Um, There's some ownership there. You know, I didn't want to be that person. You know, why did I choose a subscription site? I think is more important because Uh, I was watching the market was all downloadable and Craig had created creative life to be, you know, right there, downloadable. But I had this idea that I needed to have a library and I wanted a Netflix model. And I was very lucky to know somebody in the Netflix startup team that had in the executive team. And I actually called him um, and I asked for counsel and we spoke for a couple of hours and he was like, you know, this will work for you because you have the content once you get that audience locked in there with their membership, it's attrition. That's your only concern. And, you know, we went through it and I came back and I, I knew it, wanted it to be the portrait system I wanted it to be. And again, even though it was entirely my content, I still thought I could sell it.
0: Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> So let's, I want to, I want to come back to the naming issue because yep. I think it plays a, a central role in, in the acquisition. Yep. Uh, just a couple of questions on metrics. So just give listeners, if you don't mind, and again, I don't know how much you could share, but you know, so how big did you get the membership, the company, of so in terms of revenue before uh, you entertained the first acquisition offer? Like where were you kind okay, of top line? Before one? you
2: say that, can I just say the year before that I was on my own before you boys, I did my, you know, I kept that running very, very tight. My numbers Mm -hmm. tight. So I could really see how, what I got to build. And my first launch year without the boys, I launched with 74 videos. We now have over a thousand, six years later, 74 videos. And I had an internal blog and I got 2000 students instantly at $25 a month. And my first year of revenue just off that platform was 675k. Now I didn't have any employees. I was running this from home. Everything else was virtual infrastructure in terms of who was building my website. My crew that would come in and film were all um, just contracted. So if I wasn't shooting, they're not working. So my profit was extremely high on that 675,000, but I had no sales or marketing set up at all all because I was getting all of my clients from my private group that I'd been coaching for years. So they not only came in on my second year, they rebuilt my site and we launched, we launched effectively 2.0. So I did manage to get that little year before them. And then when they came in, this is where they grew me, right? Really grew because I could never grow.
0: So, six hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars a year is a pretty nice lifestyle business without a lot of, you know, employees to pay. Did you ever think about just running that independently?
2: Yeah, because I also um, that was the first time I'd actually got my personal income to a million dollars because I also had other income coming in from, you know, my digital products and and what I do as a photographer. So, yeah, why on earth did you? I know, <laughs> you know my give goal my life up. was to get my business to a million dollars. I did that. And at 35, but when I got my personal income there, I remembered thinking like, this is exactly what I've worked towards. But I also knew that it wasn't enough. I, I knew that it wasn't enough to um, I could, you know, maintain it, but I wanted to have more than that. I wanted When to- you say
0: more than that, do you mean more money?
2: Um more lifestyle, more money, more growth, more, um, I guess, more building. I was just always focused on loving what I was doing. So I guess that just mean I made more of everything. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I often think back. Cause I, I look at being boxed in and all these businesses and, and you are like, that's what makes it easy to sell them when you start to hate them. And mm. I said to Craig, there's something about me that I start to wilt and I don't just wilt. I, I wanted like in that, after I built it and it starts really gaining traction, once it's making money, I'm not, lots of money. I'm not interested. Yeah. That doesn't interest me. It it What interests me is getting it to that place and then they can have it after that, like go for it.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're, we're also our own worst enemies when we get the business to be successful in some cases, because we do self-destructive things. I don't know if that ever crossed your mind or you experienced that either.
2: I'm just never Uh, out of startup phase. Even when, even now that I've got, you know, even since the last 10 years of income, I still act like I'm bootstrapping. I still work like I'm bootstrapping. I still work. I can pull 15 hours a day like I have to, you know, like it's my job. And I remind myself I'm an entrepreneur.
0: So when Sue started and you really got involved in the business yeah. the, the previous year was 675 in top line. Craig, where did you get the business to before you received your first acquisition offer in terms of top line revenue? So the I
1: we got this up to, I think, just shy of $7 million a year. And there had been some expansion. Um, we actually had a number of other Um, kind of elements added onto this. Um, We did a conference. We spun off another site called the Portrait Masters, which sold other photographers work as downloadable products. Um, And then Sue also added a photo contest and accreditation that brought in. So we had, we had several different kind of adjunct business models that kind of attached onto this core business.
0: Give me the Um, the rough breakdown between those, those five. So conference in terms of percentage, like, again, it doesn't have to be exact, but like percentage the 7 million what,
1: what yeah so the conference? The, the conference the conference was doing i think so just just shy of a million a year did we ever break a million with the conference yeah, i think 1.1 1.1 and
2: 19 years. what about portrait yeah.
1: master portrait masters i think way we, we got that up to about 4 million oh, oh so, excuse me portrait masters which is the online store for individual photographers mm-hmm. i think that would be between 1.5 and 2.5 on an annual basis it's it's much Correct. more um spiky and lumpy in terms of income. Yeah. It's what about the membership? Sales. Membership. Uh, we got up to, I think just shy of 4 million.
0: Wow. Three, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the rest between the, uh, the contest and the accreditation yep. in terms of the conference business, what was the churn like on the membership program? Like, did you ever measure sort of annual churn rate or monthly churn rate?
1: Well, honestly, I think we're going to talk about what we learned, in a in a, in a due diligence process, to oh, be yeah. honest, we didn't Actually, really fully understand yeah, right. our, our churns, our, our churn rate. It, it, we, we knew it from a top line standpoint. We knew it a lot from individual stories of individual people, but we didn't really know it um, analytically the way we should. What have. did you
0: come to learn about your churn rate through doing the analysis, you know, post. Um, we, I th- so
1: we had well, let's see. Um, we we were doing about a ten percent churn per year, and the difference between annuals and monthlies really like played a big difference. So we got we ended up getting into a lot of annual subscription, and so we had very lumpy income on the annuals. And I think we were running about a ten percent churn, might be a little bit higher
0: than that actually. But uh, got it on an annual mm- basis. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that's incredible. It, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on membership websites typically mm-hmm. they're notorious for having a very high annual churn rate. So if you were retaining,
2: that yeah, our be, a, loyalty you know. rate is extraordinarily high, and um, our engagement is extraordinarily high, especially mm-hmm. when we got that that very first private equity um, review, and, which Craig's going to tell you about. But I think it's because you know I now teach content curation. And I teach people how to build online businesses platforms, um, content workshops, etc. And I realized that there really is no platform without a live component and there really is no live component without a platform and they really feed each other. Um, we were we were very um we were very groundbreaking in the sense that we had a live broadcast going out with a custom built sort of chat and box where I can just respond in real time to all around the world. And that engagement is extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, I want to get to that in a moment, but let's get into the acquisition offer because yeah. you're, you're, you're almost at 7 million in revenue
2: mm-hmm. and,
0: and you were approached. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that, Craig, who approached you and what was their so what was your conversation it was a
1: private equity firm um that was doing a roll-up in the photography space with online businesses in the photography space and uh, they initially approached us through a through one of the companies the first major company that they had acquired to start that roll-up um and uh they approached george uh who is um who who's one of our partners that basically like kind of has all the business relationships. He's he's got you know he's got the amazing rolodex, and just asked how interested we were. Um, we at the time had not really been interested, but we set up a a flight out to the east coast to to have an all day meeting uh, with with both the the private equity team as well as the the company that they're running. Um, Do you have this- any
0: sense of what the business might be worth? before you flew to New York?
1: Mm, We only had a number that we as owners were interested in. I think Sue, we were talking, I think Sue had a post-it note for $10 million on her mirror at that point. And- <laughs> yeah. I've had
2: that for since 2000 and I think 14, it yeah. had a special note and I've mm-hmm. written that as my, like my goal in life. <laughs> yeah.
0: What did 10 million mean to you, Sue? Like what, what was it about that number that was important enough to have mm-hmm. a sticky note on your mirror? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I've created that amount of content for someone else and I Mm -hmm. wanted to do the same for myself. Um, I wanted to, uh, I think the post-it note was a rejection response when I offered that content to, um, to sell before I built my own platform. I considered that I was smart enough to curate my own content and perhaps leverage that or license it. Um, on somebody else's platform I approached a few people I presented it to them and this one guy laughed at me and I I was a little humiliated but I had a post-it a little thing of bright pink post-its on top of my laptop and when he like said this this thing to me I wrote it onto this post-it and he said to me that um, anybody Sue Bryce can build a two million dollar brand but there are not many people that can build a $10 million brand. And to think you could do so with your name is, yeah, no, is what arrogant to assume. And I used the word arrogant. Yeah. And I wrote that. I actually wrote that whole quote and then I wrote $10 million and I cried. (laughs) I walked out of there. I cried. And, um, I just had a good hard talk to myself and I was like, you know, I was walking through this park and there was, I just thought to myself, I'm going to do this on my own. I did the first business on my own. This is where I'm the best on my own. I'm not supported. And I just, Went, here I am again on my own. (laughs) I was standing there and this homeless guy on the park bench there went, like a drifter I was born. And I was like, thank you very much. I didn't know the next line. And I walked away and I just was like, I'm going to do this. Watch me. So to me, that note was a challenge. It was, you can't do this. It was, you're arrogant to think you even can And I remember thinking, well, that is all I've ever needed to achieve anything is people to tell me I can't because I'm sorry people told me that my whole life. And I think that might just be where my rocket fuel comes from. So yeah, that's it.
0: (laughs) Awesome. So you fly to New York, Sue's got her sticky note of 10 million Mm -hmm. on her mirror. What were those meetings like? I mean, what was that? Can you describe that
1: experience for me? Um, well, first of all, we were just meeting, and then they sent us an agenda where they asked us to put a bunch of stuff together for a presentation. So it evolved from them uh, like pursuing us to them wanting us to make a presentation to them about us. Um, and I remember as a team, we were pulling together slides and we were trying to like figure out how to how to like show the best we could, show what we were. Um, it was great. It was high energy. Uh, we talked all day. Sue um, really. Um, Sue really wowed them personally. Um, and I think during that conversation, we also as a team started to see some of the weaknesses that we had. So we weren't at $7 million at that time. So we had actually like hit our personal high point early in 2018. And, um, for various reasons had our, our revenue had started to decline a little bit some of the lumpiness that started to decline um we had gotten very enthusiastic about a bunch of ideas so we were actually increasing our spending on a whole bunch of we different ideas we were fat we were I, I think every one of the partners had a a personal hobby or interest that they were advocating for and so we had spun up all these individual projects because we could afford it and we were making a lot of money um and as we had someone just evaluating our company from a financial standpoint, it became clearer and clearer to us that maybe we weren't quite as strong as we thought we were. And um, by the end of that meeting, we felt really good about how we showed, but we also, as a company said, I don't think we really want to pursue the acquisition at this point. And so- I mean,
2: even uh, we had the conversation of, do we accept um, five? Do we accept four? Do we, you Mm -hmm. know, you have that conversation, like what's the lowest you're prepared to go? Mm -hmm. And I was like, when I realized we weren't actually going to get to 10 million because we weren't ready for that anyway, yeah. in my head, I was like, okay, maybe my next company will be 10 million. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking that, but then I looked at them and, and I said, no, I don't, I don't, that's not right. And, yeah. and it wasn't that the offer wasn't right. I think we weren't right. But we'd yeah. also, you know, you go through, you, we were fat. Yes, we were a little disconnected. You go through personal things. I lost a parent, you know you have bad months and we looked back and this was the perfect opportunity to look at it and go, how do we make this better again?
0: Okay. Hold, hold on one second. Yep. Cause you guys are skipping ahead in the story and I want to make okay. sure our listeners uh, are following along. Okay. So you go to New York, you have an mm-hmm. all day meeting at this point, yep. Sue's got the sticky note for 10 mm-hmm. the specter of at this point, they have not put an offer in front of you. Is that correct?
1: Correct. Right. Correct.
0: So you have this, this long meeting where mm-hmm. you're putting together all these slides and you're realizing mm-hmm. oh, our revenues kind of dropping a bit. Ooh, our profits looking a little less than it was because we've got all these pet projects, yep. but you put the slide deck together. Mm-hmm. You have what you said was like a fruitful meeting that you felt mm-hmm. like, wow, we really presented well. You're leaving the room. Did they put a number in front of you at that point?
1: No, they did not put a number in front of you at that point. Okay. Um,
0: so you leave the room, everybody's shaking hands. What did they say at the end?
1: Um, this was an informational meeting. We, we knew that they were interested. They had floated some numbers and based on where we were responding, I kind of felt like they knew that they shouldn't make us the offer at that time. So we were going to go regroup, talk as business partners. We were going to get back to them. They were going to get back to us. And we were basically going to like talk what what happens next after this information has all been shared.
0: Okay. So they were sort of throwing some sort of softball salvos over the the transom to see
2: And I think what they were doing that really for was because they knew that we were probably not looking as good as we should. So if they throw a softball out, see if we're comfortable, then they can start cutting us down from that number. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what they did.
0: And so in the meeting, uh, like, how did they sort of like, was it, did they say like, how would you guys feel about one times revenue? Or did they kind of, did they throw a number? Like, how would you feel about six or five or like, how did they sort of feel you out for that?
1: Um, so we were not really t- talking in terms of multiples. So and at this point, uh, so this was this was a private equity firm and it was very apparent that the teams that we were working with in private equity were, they were negotiators, they were they were salespeople. they were, you know they they knew how to, Balance relationship. They weren't going to push harder than we were ready to receive. They weren't the people that were basically doing all the the hard numbers. They were trying to get a sense of us. And
2: there was was a consistent Mm -hmm. conversation back then about EBITDA.
1: Yeah. About five, Mm -hmm. six
2: times EBITDA. So we were having that kind of openly saying those words Mm -hmm. because-
0: Do you remember what your EBITDA was at that point, Sue? Ballpark?
2: No.
1: Um No. I don't know right. if it was a, so we had about five different businesses. It's something that came up during due diligence, but our, our P and L's had four or five different business models overlaid all on top of one P and L really hard to parse this out.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you don't know roughly what your overall EBITDA margin was on the 7 million. You're not yeah, sure exactly. exactly. Yeah. Okay. But they were sort of floating. Let me see if I get this straight. And again, mm-hmm. I'm, for, for folks listening to this, yeah who've never gone through the process. I think Mm -hmm. they're curious like, what's it gonna feel like when I get into the boardroom and how am I gonna know what you know what they're doing and so mm-hmm. what i'm hearing you say sue is like they were softly throwing out numbers like five to six times but well, this was and- a really
2: unusual experience for me hang on because those those people sitting there for those hours i felt like we were naked and standing on stage sure we were looking through our and l numbers lp and through our private stuff and asking why is that why was that dropped this year why did this go up why mm-hmm. did that go down it was like everything you've ever done was now put up on that board and you were standing there like a kid going, yep, I did that. I made that decision. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep, we did but, that for but again, a I, Yeah, That's helpful that to intense. know sort of yeah. that, mm-hmm. that, that, that feeling. Yeah. And again, I, th- I think that's very natural. Uh, but to be clear, they'd sort of threw out numbers like five to six and then you in the back of your mind of doing the back of the map yeah math saying, well, like that's not gonna get me to 10. No. So yeah. I remember you're, thinking you're sort of, doing
2: that ever there and going like in my head, going, uh, Oh, they're gonna offer us like probably seven or eight, like and I was like, I'm never yeah. gonna yeah, yeah, not
0: gonna yeah that's it. that's super helpful. Yeah. That's super helpful. Did you ever call them on the apparent switch, the bait and switch almost? Because you know you were being wooed. It's not like you went mm-hmm. to them with a the book and and you, you know, you cut you went to them hat in hand saying, please buy us. You you were being wooed. They came to you. And you were going to New York to have this many. And all of mm-hmm. a sudden they throw this agenda at you and they want you know, four years of financials and how you know your growth projections. Mm-hmm. And and did you ever call well, hold on a second, time out? I you came to us. Oh, did no, you ever we how, excited? You're excited. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I would also
1: say there was this other overlay happening on this, which is there had been some internal debates and, and differences within the partners on terms of what business we wanted to grow different directions, um, some unresolved. And so these were also kind of in play with the four of us as we are going through this process. Um, um, and like Sue had, had lost, lost a parent. Um, also, uh, you know, early in 2018, Sue had made, had, had, taken herself off Facebook, like had basically stopped, you know, had, had to protect her own sanity had stopped being as visible. And we had not replaced a marketing engine that wasn't Sue or necessarily even acknowledged that we needed to. And mm-hmm. so there were a lot of things that we were kind of on this slow glide that we we're probably the first year into a glide path that we were not quite admitting and pulling these numbers together really
0: surfaced for us that we had been gliding for the last 12 months instead of growing. And when you say gliding, you mean to plateauing in terms of revenue and yeah. Yeah.
1: Plateauing. So, so so it's a glide because our attrition was not terrible, but, um, but yeah, like the numbers, we are slowly decreasing in all our numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And so you leave that meeting, they're all Mm -hmm. pleasantries and Mm -hmm. shaking hands and Mm-hmm. Wonderful. What? How did you leave it? What was what was the commitment to one another A at that falling point? Falling knife. Well, no, no, that's later
1: Sue. <laughs> we uh, we we said we'd get back to him. George would get back to him. We get to as, back to him about what? Uh, whether we'd get back to them after we'd had a chance to group. So we left the physical meeting saying, we need as partners to to, to like connect, see if we want to pursue this. Just effectively, everyone's learned something. Let's connect next week and see where everyone's standing. So there was no Did you have a non-disclosure
0: agreement with the private equity group? Um, yes. Yep, yeah, that's yeah. You signed one prior to the meeting. We did. The meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So then where does it go from there? We as a team
1: said, we don't, we don't want to pursue this. Like it didn't feel like it was going to work. George called them back and said, we're going to pass at this point. Um, He said it was very sorry to hear that and effectively came back, I think about a day later and said, look, we totally hear that you are you're passing. Can you just do the exercise of give us a list of what it would take for you to say yes? Um, So we hear the no, but tell us what would be a yes. And that's where we as a group basically went back and made a bullet list of what we were interested in. Um, and some of the things on that list actually were things that were coming up in the meeting that we were really clear about that that were some of the reasons we said no. One is they would have been acquiring all these digital companies and kind of needed someone to help run them. And we're seeing the us as a leadership team coming into the companies they're acquiring and we didn't want to do that. So our list was that um, we as owners didn't want to have to work more than 10 hours per week in any transition point. We didn't really want to be long-term employees of whatever we were working on. Sure. Um, um, we didn't necessarily want to be long-term part of the sale that they were buying. And we had some numbers in terms of what we wanted to bet. So, our, so we didn't want jobs after the acquisition. Uh, we didn't want limits of what we can do outside of photography. And we wanted a cash target of an acquisition of $8 million. So those are the things that we gave them as like a bullet point. Um, and said, if, if they came back and said, we can do those things, then we'd be interested in talking. But other than that, we had made peace that we were basically passing and we were going to go fix our business and make it more valuable and then have a conversation later when it was fixed.
2: was it then What they was their
1: reaction say? to the bullet list? Um, they said, I think we can do that. And um, um, they, they said they think they can do that. They, they, and they gave us they, they ended up they ended up giving us a uh, a, a term sheet at. Eight million with I think a two million holdback. Um, when you say holdback, what do you mean by that? So was it a holdback? I think it was I think it was two million was going to be in the form of stock or in terms of ownership in the in the um, the the roll-up companies. Although okay. honestly, at that point the whole idea of a roll-up was still Kevin new concept for all of us. Okay. So, so it was $10
0: million this. offer, two million of equity oh, carry, no, eight million cash up 8,
1: eight million dollar offer, two million
0: carry so so, so, eight so. Of, of the eight to carry mm-hmm. they exactly. got it so six in cash two in mm-hmm. carry exactly got it. and
1: i think we all decided yeah if this if this could work this could work sue is that like i mean that's this would be great for sue to like throw in something
2: yeah i think everybody was yep except for me <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> you had that damn sticky note i know yeah. mm-hmm.
2: And they would all but, just shake their head at me.
1: Yeah. Um, and then we were in due diligence, and so basically at that
0: point, uh, we we signed the term sheet. Hold on. Yeah. Before, okay. So I, I yeah. want to explain that. So, Sue, so, so, you're shaking your head. No, I, I, you didn't want to do the deal. Is that right?
2: I just remember thinking in my head, I'd set this number, mm-hmm. and in my head, I was like working towards that. So, how did you
0: get comfortable? Because it sounds like you signed the term sheet.
2: Um, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I think back to then and I was like, it was happening. And again, I think I was just excited to be able to exit so I could build something new. So I was probably struggling with the idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So you signed the term sheet. What happens next?
1: Well, then, then we kick off due diligence, and then the paperwork starts flowing. So they they spun up digital uh, digital rooms for us to start documenting everything. Um, Aaron, who is our kind of head of operations, basically he started working nonstop on pulling these things together, and so um, we pulled for up. Months. For months, basically. So there are four areas of due diligence. There was market and customers. There was financial due diligence. There was legal due diligence. And then there was staffing and leadership due diligence. And each one of these, they had a separate team basically going in as deep as they could. They had a third-party company come out and start interviewing our customers and surveying our customers, serving the audience as a whole, adding on what they already knew about the the market because they had been doing a lot of market research um, in the photography space anyway as part of the roll-up. Um, they started doing a lot of financial due diligence, um, which was a, which was the most problematic part for us. We had, we, uh, you could, it's you, I, the way I looked at it. You could almost look back through our financials, like rings of a tree that's grown and kind of like understand different ways we thought about our business at each year as they were shifting, but they didn't necessarily hold awesome. de- they didn't hold together in a, co- in a coherent way. um, um, we, our expenses had really ballooned in 2018. So we basically were doing like all this was surfacing with financial due diligence. Uh, legal, we had some relatively complex legal structure that we were trying to surface and then staffing. Um, some of this was really surfacing debates and internal conversations we'd had before because we did aspirationally say we wanted to build a company that could work without us or without Sue but all of our behavior inside of the company tended to be opposite to that stated intention. Um, um, We didn't necessarily have a marketing system that could work without Sue. We had no content creation system that could work without Sue. Um, And, and I, and Sue was feeling the weight and was also pushing back against growth because she saw growth as adding weight to her shoulders, as opposed to being something that she should feel joy in.
2: That's how did the private step equi- fire to it? <laughs> in the private equity
0: group term sheet, how did mm-hmm. they treat Sue's ongoing involvement? Because in the three bullets, it was like we ten hours a week is max. We don't want to be employees. We're not running this thing, right? They said, "Yeah, we're good with that." How did the term sheet specify Sue's role ongoing? I, don't I mean, remember honestly,
2: with them, I only know this one. This, yeah, one yeah.
0: I want to get to it, this so. one, but but in that private equity group, like, how do they treat it? I mean, honestly, they gave us what we asked for. I,
1: I think they knew that if they got us farther down the road, they'd be able to make change. They were they were experienced. They were not afraid to basically adjust the term sheet as necessary based on what was surfaced during due diligence. Ah, So so the, the, the term sheet. So, and I would say if we're going to compare different systems, like the term sheet from the private equity firm came super fast, it came within the first conversation and it basically mirrored what we said we would need to have in order to say yes. And then we went into deep due diligence and They knew all along that they were going to have a second term sheet, which we we kind of suspected, but we didn't know. And we had that second term sheet that showed up around November that basically took everything they had learned from due diligence and started basically picking it apart.
0: So the original term sheet was six cash two carry Mm -hmm. sue 10 hours a week. Max, you're on your own to go do other things. Have fun. Mm -hmm. Love you. Second version of the term sheet after due diligence. What was the difference? Second version
1: of the term sheet, I think, got down to five cash with no carry. Um, still still, none of this is binding. And I think even then it was still them just getting, getting what seemed justifiable, but also part of just chipping away at the conversation um, because there was no based on what they had seen in due diligence where we were due diligence, I was pretty sure they were not going to like close at that. This just felt like a resetting of expectations at that point. Yeah
0: interesting. Yep. So you knew that it was going to drag out even further, like yeah. pulling a yarn on a sweater. Exactly. Interesting. So you're down to five cash. And in the in the second version of the term sheet, was Sue's role changed at all? Did they lock, try to lock her into ongoing? Nope. No? no, not okay. at
1: this point. Um, and although at, at this point, we had not gotten as heavily into the staffing part of the due diligence portion. So basically, they were chipping down based on the financial due diligence. And really, where the, where the where, where really things came out, which also explains why they were engaging with us, is we we absolutely maxed out in the customers and market awareness. So basically what the market thought of us and what our customers thought of us was they, they put a, a little two by two graph and we were far up in the upper right hand corner uh, in terms of what the market perceived as excellence in education. Our That's finances messy. were messy and uh had been declining for 12 months and the legal and staffing they were somewhat delaying on getting deep into that because they were going one step at a time
0: so, so you're down to five cash no mm-hmm. carry yeah what was your reaction to that second term sheet i think
1: we well i think we were i i think we started to think that we were probably done but maybe it's worth keeping this thing alive a little bit longer to to kind of see where it goes next but um certainly enthusiasm is starting to drop within the partners and there's also there was not a lot of confidence that it was going to close at that new term sheet
0: Sue, so you want to add to that what was your reaction
2: yeah i just gotten to that point where um when i read the survey the results mm-hmm. especially how we were being perceived it said by your we customers Yes, that we were a recession-proof company, mm-hmm. that we were um, had the highest loyalty they've ever seen in a company they've reviewed. And I was reading that saying, but we still have the magic. So I'm of a firm belief that, you know, all the players, whoever the owners are, whether there's one or ten, they have to be in alignment. And, you know, we got out of alignment for there. Like Craig said, we had private projects and stuff, but... When I saw that survey, I remember thinking, we have the magic, we've just had a bad year. And, you know, I, when he asked at that meeting, when he specifically said, why did you have a bad year this year? They all looked at me and, you know, I talked about um, two, of our, two of us lost a parent that year and, two of, and we went through all the stuff. And I don't know, you have personal stuff comes into your business and life and you've got to expect that. That's, it's just what it is. Business partnerships are like a marriage. When you get into business, you don't talk about the divorce because you don't think you're going to get divorced, but there's got to be some exit plan, especially when you've got you know, a whole lot of chefs and no cooks. You've got four people there making decisions. That's four people pulled different ways. That's always going to create a problem. Once we got there, I was like, the, the business wasn't fractured. We were So I figured we could be fixed at my worst case scenario was I'm never going to run a ship aground while I'm at the helm and this ship has my name on it. So I go into save it mode where I'm like, right, how do I turn this around? If the boys don't want to be in anymore, I have to buy them out. Maybe I flip them out. I take this back. And I run at it, but we sat down, we saw that magic in that survey. We reconnected, we all got back into alignment. We created a plan, uh, a plan to, you know, bring it back. And we just got into alignment again. That was it.
0: And so at some point, it sounds like you chose to disengage from this private equity group. Just who, who cut it off? So you, you're down to five in cash, second offer. You, you're kind of rekindling it. But, but who actually made the first move to say, you know what? This isn't really going to work. Did you we call actually- them
1: or did they call you? We so what we did is we basically said, Hey, we need to start rebuilding the business. So around October, November, we had we had a lot of heart to heart conversations. We basically said we've been out of this for a while. Whether we sell this now or sell this later, these things have to happen to the business to make it function. And so we basically said, Let's start rebuilding it today for the business it needs to be. Whether and then we let this due diligence process continue. Just because we figured, why pull out of it? Like, why not let this thing continue? Um, But I don't think any of us had a lot of belief it was going to be something we were going to end up closing on. Um, Although
2: it's the incredible experience that we got that inevitably taught us so much that it actually, it was probably the catalyst as to why we rebuilt the business that year.
0: The best ways to see what drives the value of your company is try to get acquired and and see, have it, (laughs) have it get
1: derailed. They, uh, they spent about $250,000 on the due diligence process. Um, They flew us, they flew me and George and Aaron out to Boston to basically go over every line item of our books that they'd reconstructed with this flanks of like eight CPAs from Ernst & Young. Um, They had a real, so we, we probably got this massive education process of how you build a business in hindsight. What was their reaction when you finally said we're out? They knew the numbers that we were going to say yes to. And so the person that had been basically managing this all along effectively knew that they were going to have to continue chipping away at that 5 million based on what they were seeing. And, they also knew we were not going to say yes to that. And so it was more of a soft ending of the process. Basically, they said we, and I think this was in December, in December, they said, I don't think we're going to pursue this any further. Um, we're still interested. We don't want to formally end the relationship, but we're not going to continue putting in, putting in work into the due diligence process. We're going to let the, you know, we're going to let all the, uh, the agreements lapse at this point. And we were, we were not arguing against that. We were at the same place they were.
0: On the term sheet, was mm-hmm. there a specified length of time for due diligence? Usually, it's sixty days. Do you do you recall if that was stated specifically? You
1: know what? There was a there was a there was a stated length of time for the validity of the term sheet, but due diligence itself was not okay. was not mapped out in any way.
0: Yeah. So, for for my listeners who are entertaining mm-hmm. this kind of deal, one of the things to keep in mind is if you can put hard parameters around the Mm. due diligence period. Sometimes you can avoid some of this kind of, you know, feeling like you're pulling a yarn on a sweater that sort of just continues on in fun items. So so that's something to think about.
1: One other thing also to point out, we also didn't bring anyone else from the outside. So they started this conversation. We did not go out and find anyone to represent us for the process. So it was for relatively newbies on our side letting them largely guide the process. And so we were very reactive to what was going on as opposed to even necessarily knowing what it's supposed to look like.
0: So the deal kind of comes to an end at the end of 2018. 2019, 2019. Okay. Got it. Where does it go from there? Because, so you re, you reconstituted the partnership, you realigned, you refocused, you know, we could talk for the next five hours, but mm-hmm. but I don't think uh, mm-hmm. we should. I think we should focus in on maybe two or three things you did yep. to to really clean up the business, improve its value leading up to what ultimately was your acquisition.
1: So and this conversation really started around October, November, but we we as partners basically made a number of decisions together. One is our, our leadership team was really muddled. The four of us were kind of like co-equals looking for consensus among that. We basically said the next phase of this is the company needing to be stabilized. And of the the four of us, Aaron is now going to effectively function as the head of super Education. So Sue is not gonna be the head of super Education. Aaron is basically
0: going to run the company. How'd you guys um, divvy up the equity? Was it sort of equal shares for everybody
1: or how did it was? It, it was 50% Sue and the remainder amount is, is one third one. So George, Aaron, and I split the other half a third each.
0: Okay. So Aaron is a shareholder, but a minority shareholder, but takes the role of CEO. Yeah. Got it. So one cook in the kitchen. Sue, how did you feel about relinquishing uh, relinquishing control of a company that is your namesake to Aaron?
2: I don't have any control. I'm a content creator. I should not have any control. I don't manage people. I should not manage people. I just create the content. So you make a platform and I'll tune up and I'll do really, really well, but don't give me anything else to do. (laughs) You need to put somebody in place to manage me.
0: (laughs) Great. That's super helpful. So (laughs) you, you mentioned one thing you did was align the management team, make Aaron CEO. What else did you do to clean it up? We, we, and this was me advocating,
1: we, one of the problems was we were doing too much. We were doing way too much. We were spinning up new business models. We were spending money on side projects. And so effectively, no longer were the owners to find their personal satisfaction or, or side projects within the business. If we had things we wanted to do that didn't match what the business needed, it was our job to go start another business, go do something else. But the goal is to keep our time in the business to 10 hours or less for each of the founders, for each and of the we each did of that the principals. By
2: creating, we we put a block on creating anything new because yeah. we are yeah. people that in order to like if you said to me we need to make an extra two hundred thousand dollars this quarter, I would make something to sell because that's how I operate. So we had to do this next round of rebuilding without creating anything new, but taking what we had and just maximizing, using everything, every system, making sure everything we had was incredible. And that was a great challenge to not make anything because, you know, you're just spending more money again to try and get more money.
0: What next? Third
1: thing you guys did. The, the big thing is basically to build a succession plan to run and grow the company without Sue. So that meant that we had a marketing and sales team that was empowered to sell without Sue. Um, previously, Sue was integral to the sales and marketing and also was feeling reluctant to grow the business because it was just creating more weight on her shoulder. So she would be theoretically leading or part of the sales team, but also pushing against selling. So we basically had a team Um, Oh, we employed,
2: that's when we employed Sarah. So she started Mm -hmm. to do a a Mm full-time marketing ninja, you know, online marketing strategy and creating um, ads. And so she's been with us since that month. And of course, we were taking, we were instantly seeing results. Our numbers were just climbing straight back up again and then bang, Mm -hmm. COVID.
0: Yep. Um, Before we go to COVID, uh, I'd love to ask yeah, well I want to get there too, but but just related to pulling Sue out of the business. Mm-hmm. How did you approach the the branding? Again, the the name of the program was the Portrait System, but the name of the company was Sue Bryce Education. Any changes there?
1: Yeah, so the next really critical piece and this is from Aaron and I watching another content membership company that was sold. We started a podcast for the company with one of the leaders in our company who was not Sue. So we started creating a voice for someone who is not Sue to represent the company. that was, well, that was Nikki. Um, and we started recording a podcast with her effectively interviewing members about their success stories. Um, we produced a bunch of that through October, November, December, it launched in January and really started building her as the next visible leader in the company that could be doing all the live and all the engagement with the audience um, without it having to be Sue. But the podcast, having another voice was important. What else did you do? Anything else that you did? Oh, and the one thing about that podcast is we knew we were going to rebrand at some point back to the portrait system as the company name. Uh, So we named the podcast, The Portrait System. So the the podcast became The Portrait System. And we're jumping ahead, but post-acquisition, a year after uh, post-acquisition, we are now... The the website is now branded as the portrait system. So we've actually now completed this transition of moving Sue's away. So it's now the portrait system by Sue Bryce as as the name. So this was a a strategy we had started to implement back in late 2019. It just took a long time for it to actually become
0: visible. Great. A mm-hmm. million dollars of your revenue came from live conferences thereabouts. Mm-hmm. COVID hits three months after you put a pin in the private equity deal. How did that impact your business? So actually this was a really hard debate
1: within the partners because George loves conferences and really, really was strongly advocating for doing a virtual conference. And we as a company had said, we're going to simplify. We're not going to be creating new things Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and effectively We had said everyone has to go get a hobby if they want to have a hobby. So George took and effectively licensed our name to go do a conference, a virtual conference um, in a company that he started um, and he did a virtual conference during covid.
0: So you got some licensing revenue for that. Was it a revenue sharing deal or did he pay cash for that? Or
1: No, no. We figured it, we just effectively, it was more important that actually the business didn't take on that hassle. So it was really, we, it wasn't a revenue play as much as it was trying to keep the business from becoming more complex. And so we let okay. basically George run with that. So you walked away from a million dollars of revenue then in the live event. Um, not a live event; it became a virtual one because COVID was on board. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, but
0: Before before COVID, you mentioned yeah. the conference business was around a million dollars in revenue. So well, the COVID boys did hit.
2: something even better. They mm-hmm. okay. did. They did. Um, I'd been behind a paywall for so many years mm-hmm. that people had stopped actually seeing my content. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm yeah. not a big um, sort of publisher of content on my social media, but because I sell it and I don't give it away on social media, so if you weren't really inside that paywall, how would you see what I was creating or what we're doing? And at that time, the first month of COVID, we're watching our numbers drop, you know, 500 to 500 members are, are, you know, disengaging because people are losing their income. And I was like, can we survive this? I remembered that survey saying we're recession proof. And that's when the um, guys opened up online free week, free access week, where we actually opened our doors for seven days and we allowed people to come in and have a look around and you can carry on from there because it's such yeah, a great story.
1: We, yeah, we basically, we did a free week. Everyone was locked at home. Uh, this was probably, this was in April and it was just explosive. The, it was the first time that we had really done any marketing around giving access to the site. Cause actually, was actually one of the things that Sue had been adamantly opposed to. It was never like, like, like from, a, from a philosophical standpoint, I don't ever want people to get access to this for free. And we made the choice that during COVID, we're going to give a week of access to free for the world. It exploded within the photography space. Um, We broke every record in terms of traffic, audience, everything else. And basically that, that turned what a year we assumed was going to be a huge downturn into kind of an explosive year of growth.
0: How did you end 2020 in terms of top line revenue, bottom line profit? Do you recall sort of ballpark where you guys were? So I think top line we were, I think we
1: were just above four million. So down quite a bit, down quite a bit from our high point, and we had, and we had, and that and we'd shaved off the conference. But in terms of profitability, we were significantly higher. So basically what we did is we said top line revenue no longer matters. So this was, this was in late 2019, top line revenue does not matter. Let's focus on what's profitable. Let's say no to opportunities like the conference, like other things. And
0: let's just focus so what's on making margin. Money? Would you have cleared on the 4 million before tax, like on a percentage basis? Um, I, about, it would be
1: about a million. It'd be about a million, um, between salaries and everything else. I think it's about a million to distribute as dividends and, and then probably another half a million is uh, owner salaries in various forms. So, so depending on how you look at the money, we pay ourselves as salaries uh, that can either be viewed as profit or as, as just, you know, role function.
0: And again, I'll talk directly to my listeners here for a second. There's two different, uh, you know, Uh, types of ways to express your profit in these deals. SDE, which stands for seller's discretionary earnings, which is all of the sort of economic benefits you get from your business, including your salary, plus these sort of dividends that that Craig is describing. Uh, In a larger business, it's more common to use adjusted ebitda which would be assuming a market rate salary for the owners how much profit is left in the in the company and again it depends uh sort of on the size of your company uh, but but a company of of this size with 4 million dollars of top line it, it, i think it would be more common to use ebitda and so mm-hmm. it sounds like uh you know after paying salaries of the owners you were clearing mm-hmm. about a million dollars of ebitda Ballpark. Yeah. 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 Okay. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. And, and so I know, I I know there's probably lots of other things you did to make it more valuable, but let's, but I've captured Mm. some of the the biggies. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Did, did you shop the business? Like, was there a trigger that made you want to go back to market and, and sell it?
1: No. So we were rebuilding to be able to make it available. Um, and we did, we did talk about selling it, um, we, George reached out to his connections and specifically he reached out to a company called Emerald Holdings, which, which is the largest trade show company in the United States, um, has one of the largest wedding and photo- wedding and portrait photography events in the United States. Um, it is the big, is like the big event for photography and because of COVID all of their business had basically evaporated. So they were an in-person trade show company and COVID completely wiped them out. Over a hundred. Yeah. Over a
0: hundred conferences. The talk about, uh, talk about, you know, necessities and mother of invention, having to reinvent yourself on a dime. Exactly. And
1: they did have pandemic insurance. So they were actually made whole in the first year of losses. Oh my gosh. So they had, the, they had the funds to be able to acquire companies. <laughs> they had pandemic insurance. Like pandemic who has pandemic insurance?
0: insurance? That's incredible.
1: Apparently some, some VP, I don't think they even knew which VP it was. Give
0: that guy or gal a raise. No, apparently
2: <laughs> this was the feedback. They came yeah. in and they said uh, they were in an executive meeting and someone walked in with big white eyes and open mouth and said, it turns out an unnamed CFO Insured this company for a pandemic insurance 10 years ago and nobody knows wow. who or why, but guess what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so they've got cash and they, they need to reinvent themselves literally on a dime. They exactly. rang George and it said, you guys
2: there? for sale, and George said everybody's for sale.
0: <laughs> Where does it go from
1: there? Well, Um, So actually, there's a huge difference between the way it worked for private equity versus this company. So we had a lot of relationships. Um, George knew everybody involved. So George, um, this company that ran one of the largest photography uh, conferences in the United States had actually acquired that company 12 years ago. And George had been the VP of that company way back when. So George had been acquired previously with a company like this. So he knew everybody involved. And in fact, we hired an ex employee who used to be the second person in charge of their acquisition team to be our representative to manage this acquisition.
2: The first deal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Mm
1: -hmm. Because we also knew that we couldn't do this again as novices. So we had this list of things that we had done wrong. So we knew we needed to be represented. George found a representative that uh, that knew not only the people, but all the deals. the, do you remember what you
0: paid him or it was a him?
1: It was a him. I think we paid. Uh, I th- so I think the normal the normal rate was about 6%, something like that for like a normal broker. But we already had the deal in place and he wasn't a formal broker. I think we paid him 2%. Okay.
0: Got it. Yeah. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got a representation mm-hmm. and Emerald. So where does it go from there? I mean, do you get a term sheet or what, what, you, what happens? Well, that was the interesting thing. We got a verbal intention um
1: very early on where we where we said we wanted 10 million so or to me we wanted um where we said we wanted eight figures um and um they said they were they could do that but the acquisition team really didn't come back with a term sheet until the very end So unlike the private equity that gave us a term sheet right at the beginning that basically got shipped away, this process, they probably spent about a month starting the due diligence process um, or at least going through some of the numbers before they had it down enough to be able to give us an actual firm term sheet. But then that term sheet never varied whatsoever. So basically, once they had started the process, they delivered exactly what they were intending to deliver.
0: That verbal offer, you. So it sounds like you had they had said, "What do you want for it?" Yeah. You threw out a number, mm-hmm. and and they came back and said, "Yeah, I think we could do that."
1: Yeah. Um, so and actually, this was going through our representative. So like we had we had someone that really knew everybody inside, and so yeah, we had we had an agreement to basically move forward on all of that. Got it. Um,
0: How did they treat Sue's role? in the final letter of intent that you received?
2: It was good. We talked about um, how long I would stay in, you know, I, I'm mm-hmm. still doing live broadcasts. So I'm there for three years. And then we talked about the name change and what that would mean going from SBE to the portrait system by Super Eyes. Um mm-hmm. And they actually created an, a license, a royalty and license for me on top of my deal. I am, I have a restraint for five years but not as a photographer, just as an educator in that space. And, um, you know, I'm still fully engaged in my broadcasts with my students and loving every minute of it. And yeah, they, and so I'm licensed for three years with that name, and then they're going to review it.
0: Got it. So they have the rights to use the Sue Price name underneath uh, the portrait system for a period right. of three years. Yes. Yep. And and so the structure of the deal, in addition, sort sort of, so how did they structure it from a cash earnout carry perspective? What, what how how was that structured?
1: So the the final deal ended up being um a, being a a better being more than the original eight million that we had targeted for in the first in the first deal. So it was in the mm. very 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 low eight figures, um, with a twenty percent earnout over uh the over the next three years. Fantastic um, and. The all the all the uh, all the employees of the, the four of us as partners had various consulting arrangements with the with the firm after the acquisition. Um, so Sue is contracted to create content on a monthly basis for the next three years and. Um, I had probably the shortest period of time, which was bringing the marketing team up to speed. And then George and Aaron had various areas. So we are all under a three-year contracting agreement, which is 10 hours or less for each of us uh, per month. Um, and then we're working with their internal teams to help them run it. Um, about a, a about a year in, early in, they started to realize they needed more consistency and a, and a deeper dive. And actually our operations our operations lead, Aaron, um, accepted a deeper contracting relationship where he basically is running the company in the second year for Emerald as they continue to build out their team and get everything up to speed. Um, and the great thing is the employees all went with this. Um, most, uh, from the standpoint of the audience, there hasn't been that much change, um, and from our standpoint, the employees were already running a
0: lot of the key aspects of the business already. Fantastic, because you'd made some of those important changes, mm-hmm. and not in the least of which was getting Sue out of the marketing and sales piece. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, personally. Mm-hmm. This is great. I, I, uh, I It's very rare that we get to just sort of see a before and after. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate you guys spending mm-hmm. as much time as you have with me. Um, Sue, I, I have to ask, how do you feel about licensing your name to a company you don't necessarily control anymore?
2: Well, I guess, you know, you can always do the whole on social media, they can use your voice in a way that you don't like or, and things like that. But honestly, they get how the magic works. And the magic is, you know, it's pretty cool system. It's a great business. And, you know, we have this amazing, like Sarah, the creator of that marketing, she creates marketing that looks exactly like my brand and my voice, because we make sure that the people that, you know, do that are there. There's, I guess it's a trust thing. You have to let it go to some degree, you know, I don't actually have control. I know one thing. I've been online for 12 years. I can be speaking. I can be crying. I could have a booger during a live <laughs> broadcast, and that would become an online meme. So it really doesn't matter how people use your name. It, you've just got to, you know, trust, I think, that you, you don't have control of it anyway. So yeah. it's yeah. okay. I mean, my child grew up and went to college and is doing a whole lot of stuff I don't want to know about right now. <laughs> As we
0: all did. Are you guys ready to do a little bit of due diligence or a little lightning round of questions? Uh, I won't follow up these. I just want to get your answer to each of them. I will uh, address them to the person I think most likely is Mm -hmm. most likely to have uh, uh, maybe the most experience in that area. But if you feel like you've got a a follow on, please feel free to weigh in. Uh, Craig, What was the slimiest trick an acquirer played on you in the process of trying to buy your company?
1: Well, I mean, it would probably be just giving us everything we asked for to start the
0: conversation and then knowing that they could chip away later. Craig, what was the biggest mistake you made during the process of selling?
1: (laughs) Not knowing our numbers tightly enough.
0: Sue, what was the lowest point you reached during all of your exit negotiations across both deals?
2: The moment where I, didn't know, where I felt like I'd lost my identity and who I was. I had to find that again.
0: Sue, what was the highest moment you reached during your exit?
2: Um, I teach a thread of value through everything I do. Um, teaching people how to be more valuable, how to work with more value. It felt like to me being acquired was solid proof that I was valuable. It was a metric that was quantifiable and I've got goosebumps. Um, It made me feel like I was really that as valuable as I'd built myself up to be.
0: Do you still have the sticky note? Yes. Yes should frame that i did (laughs) craig what's one thing you wish you'd known about the exit process before you started this whole journey
1: i wish i had known how to amateurize our annual plans based on the way the revenue would be realized on a um accrual basis because that drastically affected value
0: Say that again for folks. I think you just need to just explain that a little bit
1: more. So um, we were looking at the cash as it was coming into the business. And so we took an annual 12-month prepayment for a subscription. Um, Our acquiring company viewed that as 12 monthly breakouts over the future year, um, whereas we looked at it differently. And that's had a great impact on our earnout and on the way that um, our company profitability is viewed.
0: That is worth the price of admission, right there. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Craig. That's a really important point for folks. Mm-hmm. Craig, as you approached this whole journey and started to educate yourself about exiting a company, it sounds like you leaned on Aaron and George to some extent, but were there other resources? And again, I'm looking for uh, a TED talk, uh, a book, uh, an online. Course, something that you could turn people onto that was super helpful in in helping you understand the exit process.
1: Well, I mean, so first of all, I highly recommend EO as an organization. My my group and my forum really was a huge backup for me personally as I was going through this. Um, in terms of books, I mean, built a cell really create a lot of the milestones and a lot of the markers for us as we were starting to rebuild the business in terms of a philosophical approach to understand how we needed to move things beyond. Um, and I would say, I would say probably built to sell is probably one of the top ones for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's very generous. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I will put a show note into the show notes at built to com with EO's address as well. Mm-hmm. That agreed mm-hmm. great organization. Lots yep. of our listeners are mm-hmm. members last question. And it goes to Sue what did you buy yourself? What was the trophy that you bought to commemorate this huge exit?
2: You know, there wasn't one. I thought about that. Um, I think that you, you just, I didn't know how I was going to get out of that business. It got so big and heavy. And they do, they get big and heavy. And so for me, just the fact that that situation somehow manifested and became what it was. It was like some kind of incredible gift. I figured that um, this time, I, this is the probably the second time I've been given this incredible gift of being able to grow again. And so now I think I'm just going to do this a whole lot smarter. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay, so I had not purchased a home and I was 49 And my goal in life was to buy my first home before I turned 50. But I'm a widow. I had a goal that I wanted to buy my first home with cash before I turned 50, not have a mortgage. So I had been saving for a long time for this house. And when the actual business um, went through, I was, we were, my husband and I were purchasing our first home, but not from the sale of the business. (laughs) So I kind of felt like I got my dream home at my home, but it wasn't, it was something I had been working towards, but yeah, I guess that doesn't mean a lot to people when they are homeowners or if they have multiple properties, but um, my parents were actually in their mid forties before they got their first home uh, first bought their first home. And I was, you know, 16 at the time, 15, 14, sorry. And I remember thinking, you know, I would do that. And, and it was a huge part of my life. I bet.
0: I bet. It's an amazing uh, story. I'm really uh, just incredibly uh, in debt to you for sharing all of the twists and turns and journey along the way. It's a, uh, it's a real, uh, a real pleasure that uh, you've shared it. Where is the best place to, for people to reach out and find you online? I'll start with you, Craig, and then we'll end with Sue. So for me, um...
1: LinkedIn is a great place for me. And my, my hub is craigswanson.org. So it's my name, org, not .com. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. And, and again, we'll put that in the show notes at, mm-hmm. at built And Sue, what's the best place for folks to find you?
2: Yeah, I'm suebrice.com, Sue superice photographer on Instagram. SuperIce.com is pretty much the easiest place to get me.
0: Sue, Craig, thanks for doing this.
2: Thank you so much. That was a great talk. I really enjoyed that.
0: Thank you. This has been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sue and Craig. I know I did. Hey, for show notes and all the links back to anything that we referenced on the episode, please go to the episode page on builttosell.com. Also, don't forget to nominate anyone who you think would make a great guest. Just go to builttosell.com slash nominate. And if you're interested in supporting the show please drop us a review on whatever platform you listen to us today and make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Today's show was produced by Haley Parkhill. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio and video engineering. And thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. I'm John Warlow. Talk to you again next week.